Uh, we are going to be going through um, the first letter to the Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul. We consider this 1 Corinthians. And we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Always have been as long as I've been here and always will be as long as I can help it. So um, we are in the first letter to the church at Corinth. Last week we did an introduc- introductory, if you were not here. We did some cultural background stuff, spent a lot of time in, in looking at the geography and the history of the area there in Corinth. And we discovered it was a very uh, cosmopolitan area that they, they hosted Olympic Games there and people often made the pilgrimage to come that many sailors passed on through that area. Uh, people were coming and going and, and as a result, there was a lot of different types of ideas and thoughts that came through the air the area, as well as a lot lot of different sins that people struggled with. And so what we find here is in the church, as those things became prominent in the culture, they also started to seep into the church as well. And so we find this church that Paul is going to address through this letter and also through his second letter, and uh, as he did through the other letters, which we don't have access to, but he he addressed a lot of these issues that they were wrestling with. And so a lot of what we're going to find is a lot of rebuke and a lot of correction that, are, that is going to take place. But first, in his introduction, Paul really strikes the chord that he loves the Corinthian church, that he loves these people, which is why he's correcting them and taking the time to do that, um, and that he is also thankful for them. And so we're going to continue with that here this morning. And Paul is also going to get uh, start getting into a little bit of what plagues this church and the problems that they have. And so I think this letter will be very beneficial to us uh, as a preliminary measure, but also it might touch on some things that we as a church struggle with as well. Because you see, these letters were written to an actual church at an actual time in history dealing with actual issues but it's also a letter that was written through Paul by the breath of God for the church for all time. And that means that we can glean from uh, the instructions and the information that we read through this together. So uh, I want to begin by sharing that when, um, when I was a young pastor, you know, we, we all as believers, we have different preachers and teachers and teachings that we all tend to gravitate towards. And a lot of it is based off of our, own, our personality, the, thing, the ways that we learn. We all learn differently. And so we all tend to kind of gravitate towards different teachers and types of churches. And when I was a young believer, as I was first entering Bible college and first being called into ministry, um, I was constantly drawn to, to various types of ministers and teachings and churches. And one of those ministries was Mars Hill that was founded in Seattle. And uh, the pastor that they had at the time was Pastor Mark Driscoll. Anybody familiar with Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll and and that whole ministry? Uh, I was initially drawn to his passionate preaching. He seemed to have a real down-to-earth type preaching style. And he he was dynamic, but yeah, he was conversational. But mostly... I felt he was, he was relevant to our time, and he kind of spoke to our time. But mostly, I appreciated the fact 
that he was also very knowledgeable of the scripture and very uh, theologically sound. And even today in his preaching, you, you see that he, he does a great job of exegeting a passage and a great job of expository preaching. And so that was a very rare thing when I was in college. Either you had, uh, you know, the, uh, the kind of more tired and, and, and old time preachers, you know, who just gripped the pulpit with their 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 fists until their knuckles turned white and they were very slow in their delivery, very sound in their preaching, but still, you know, it very, caused you to fall asleep uh, about five minutes in. And so really what drew me to Mark is that he, to- he taught with the same kind of theological accuracy, but yet it was a lot more dynamic and, and it kept our attention. It was interesting and it, it spoke to my generation better. And, and so I was drawn to that. And I've talked with multiple people over the years who were all also benefited from Mark Driscoll and uh, their ministry there at Mars Hill. Um, in fact, uh, early on, I led a college group here at the church where we went through one of his books, Death by Love, some years ago. But I've also heard people who have had a, a very strong negative uh, opinion about Mark Driscoll himself or the Mars Hill ministry in Seattle. And as the story goes, during the first decade of the new millennium, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill became uh, one of the most popular reformed evangelical megachurches uh, probably in the world, especially in the Northwest. And um, yet we found in 2014, the church was starting to split. And there were some div- divisions that arose within the church. Mark Driscoll came under some uh, serious fire and he was accused of arrogance, responding to conflict with a quick temper and a heart and harsh speech, um, leading the staff and elders in a domineering manner. And so uh, there was a lot of accusations against him and against the church. And he was also criticized for using church funds to pay a marketing firm to get one of his books to be on the New York Times number one bestseller list, which was a common practice among authors, but probably not a common practice among Christian authors to use church funds that way. Um, and so, you know, there were, there were some clear problems that were starting to surface from that ministry. Despite the fact that it was uh, so influential and so impactful, uh, many good works were being done, but yet we find that behind the scenes there were, there were some trouble. And so unable to resolve these issues, Mark Driscoll, he left Mars Hill, and Mars Hill ultimately in 2015 dissolved entirely. All, every one of their campuses d- dissolved. They still have some ministries in play today. Um, yeah, and if, if you're interested in that whole story, if, if you're not familiar with it, or you've never heard of any of these things, there's a podcast you can listen to. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And that's one that I'm in the middle of, uh, me and some others are in the middle of listening to at this moment. But and then after a quiet season, uh, Mark Driscoll then resurfaced and he planted a new church in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he now serves as the lead pastor to this day. So the things that happened did not disqualify him from ministry, though some would argue it might have. Uh, he continues preaching and teaching today, and I'll tune in every once in a while. But being an onlooker of that situation, uh, being one who uh, benefited in a positive way, from his ministry, I look back at that and I, I think to myself, you know, I'm thankful 
for Mark Driscoll. I'm thankful for Mars Hill. I'm thankful for their ministry and what that meant to me in my personal spiritual growth. And I'm thankful for the work that they, they have done, especially in the Seattle community. And it kind of saddens me that the entire church dissolved after Mark left uh, because it was one of the few bright lights for a while in that area. Um, so I, for one, am thankful and I'm also thankful to have learned from the mistakes that they made as well. As a young pastor getting into ministry, I took note of some of these issues that took place and some of his character flaws that, that caused some problems. And I, I have tried not to make the same mistake my, myself. Um, and I'm also thankful for God's grace through that situation. You know, the fact that, that Mark uh, was able to recover and continue to preach, and it seems to me that he's learned some lessons as well, uh, that Mark has been restored into that position, and, and we see God's grace in that. And so the whole point of that whole backstory about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill is the fact that God will indeed accomplish his purposes and his work uh, through even the most broken situations or troubled congregations. And that's really what the story of the Corinthian church is all about. Because they had some serious problems in that church. They had some leadership problems. They had some sin problems in the church. They had some major problems. Out of all the letters written to the churches that became scripture, um, the Corinthian church seems to have evidence of the most problems. More than the church at Ephesus, more than the church at, at Philippi, more than all these other churches, even the church of Rome. And so I think the story we can learn from this church is that they are an imperfect body of believers who are swarming with many faults, yet who God loved graciously and he graciously used for his purposes. In fact, he loved them enough to take the time to patiently correct them and rebuke them and encourage them in the faith. And so this was done through the Apostle Paul. And so I wanted to begin that way so that when we walk through this passage, we recognize the fact that there is no such thing as a perfect church this side of heaven. There are some that might have their stuff together better than others, but there is no such thing as a perfect church. But yet God is gracious God will use the church to accomplish his purposes, even if that church is broken. Even if people, Christians, are broken, God will use them in one way or another. Um, Wednesdays, we're going through the book of Jonah, and it's fascinating to find out how rebellious Jonah was and how unloving of a heart he had to go preach to the lost. But yet God used him, and even in his rebellion, we found this last Wednesday, that the Mariners, not the baseball team, the, the sailors, the Mariners in the boat came to faith as a result of his rebellion. Like when they threw him out of the boat and the waters calmed down, they were shocked and amazed and they gave God glory and they worshiped him. Would that have happened without his rebellion? I don't know. I mean, God is sovereign. He knows that. But God still brought about salvation even through his rebellion. And I guarantee you, God brought about salvation even through the rebellion of the Corinthian church. Uh, if, if you should happen to rebel against God or fall into sin against God, uh, you're still called, brother. 
You're still called, sister, and God will still use you even in your negative story to bring about positive for other people. That's just how amazing God is. It doesn't mean that we continue and go on sinning or sin even more, that God's grace may abound, may it never be. We don't intentionally do that. But just know that's how great God is, that he uses even the most broken churches for his purposes. And so, without further ado, let's get into the text itself. Let's pray, and we'll begin with chapter 1, starting in verse 4, where we left off last week. Father, I thank you so much for this time we get to spend together. I thank you for the songs that were sung here this morning, drawing our attention to you and your goodness and your greatness, causing our hearts to sing out to you, uh, bringing us to a good place of humility and openness to your word. Thank you so much for the songs that we sang and the musicians who led us in song. I thank you, God, for this building, this place we, we can be where we can monitor the temperature and be relatively comfortable. I thank you, God, for the protection against the elements. I thank you that we can um, gather together safely. I thank you for technology sometimes. <laughs> uh, God, just you're, you're so good, and you're so worthy of all of our praise. I pray that you'd speak to us now, God, that you would remind us of your grace but also remind us that even though rebuke and correction comes, that does not mean that you don't love us or care for us. And in fact, we find it's quite the opposite. You love us very much, and that's why you do correct us. That's why you do rebuke us. So Father, we worship you. We give you praise. Please speak to us through your word this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 1, verse 4, where we left off. The Apostle Paul writes... I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So first, as I mentioned, I want you to notice that Paul is thankful for the church at Corinth. And I don't want you to forget that fact. I don't want you to get lost in all the rebuke and the correction uh, I don't, and the language that he uses later on. Some of it's very stern and harsh. I don't want you to forget the fact that Paul is thankful, ultimately, for the church at Corinth. And he considers this church to be his fellow heirs of salvation, his partners in the faith. And so, therefore, we too should have a thankful attitude and a thankful heart towards even a broken church like the church at Corinth, despite its many faults. And Paul goes on to explain that his thanksgiving is based on the fact that he has become a witness of God's grace through them. And here are some of the ways that Paul saw God's grace through them. First of all, God enriched them in all speech and all knowledge. So the testimony about Christ, the gospel, was confirmed to have been received among them. Paul confirmed this with his own eyes. He probably confirmed it with his own mouth as he preached to them 
and he saw them receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was an eyewitness to the fact that the gospel was purely preached to them and that they genuinely received it. In contrast, Paul had many experiences throughout his missionary journeys of when the gospel was purely preached, but it was not genuinely received where it fell on deaf ears, where they did not have ears to hear the truth, and they did not receive it. Or maybe they received a part of it, but disregarded parts they didn't like. And so Paul had been a witness to both of those things. And so here he gives rejoicing and thanksgiving for the fact that the Corinthian church heard the pure word and they received it, and that they were following Christ. That brings me to... um, One of my favorite quotes, and this quote is from John Calvin, which says, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there a church of God exists, even if it swarms with many faults. And I think that's a great quote that should be the theme of the Corinthian letters, is that the word of God was purely preached and heard, um, and they were a genuine church of God, even though they had many faults. And so Paul also rejoiced in the fact that they were not lacking in any of God's gifts. Paul witnessed that God had anointed them with the gifts of the Holy Spirit to carry out the good works of God in that place, in, in the place of Corinth. And if you look in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul outlines just what he means by this. Like, what, what are the gifts that God has graced them with? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, Paul writes, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, or to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another, faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another, the work of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And obviously, when we get to chapter 12, we're going to look into that at much more depth. But you see the point that Paul is trying to make, that God, when he empowers and he enables a church to carry out ministry, he activates spiritual gifts in each person, and not every spiritual gift is the same. We all have a diversity of spiritual gifts that God has given us. And we all know this is true. We all know there is great diversity even amongst people of the same nationality. But then you add in different nationalities, you add in different backgrounds, different cultures, different attitudes and characteristics. You lump all that together with different gifts, and what do you have? You, you just have this great mixture of variety and different abilities. But God does this intentionally. God brings a variety of gifts to one church. For what reason? so that we can all come together in the common bond in the name of Jesus Christ. And even though we're different, we can operate as one. 
And if we're able to do that, that is a demonstration of the miracle of God, of the grace of God upon a church. If we are able to come together and actually agree on things together and actually do work together as one team, that is a miracle of God. That is the grace of God. How many of you have been involved in a ministry where there's little agreement, where there's lots of debating, lots of fighting, lots of arguing? I think many people have experienced that in their lifetime at one point or another. But, you know, despite many of their disagreements, Paul still reckons them as ones being given the grace of God to be able to still continue to be together despite their differences. And then Paul was also thankful for the fact that the Corinthian church were certain of Christ's faithfulness to give eternal life. Despite their problems, they still had their minds and their hearts set on heaven, on eternal life. Paul encouraged them to remember the faithfulness that it takes to continue to follow the Lord despite things going on. So Paul wanted to remind them of these things, that their faith would be sustained, that he would carry them through until the end. So again, let me reiterate that this friendly introduction that Paul is giving, which, which he often gave in his letters to the various churches, but that he still included here, Paul wanted to assure the believers at Corinth that he loved them, that Jesus loved them, and that he considered them to be brothers and sisters and fellow believers in the faith, and that he ultimately cared about their well-being. He cared enough to confront them about their issues. And I think that's the biggest misnomer here today, is that people have given our culture the idea that if you correct anybody, if you call out anybody, if you disagree with anybody about their lifestyle or anything else, that you hate them. If you don't affirm somebody's idea of who they are, if you don't affirm their behavior and their activity, then you hate them. And that is a flat-out lie. The Bible tells us that if you love someone, then you will show them the error of their ways. Obviously, we do this in a, in a gracious way. We ought to do it as Christ does it. But, I mean, consider even in the Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 tells us, An open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. And so the world has it backwards. When you love someone, you show them the error of their ways. If they receive it and they repent and turn from their sins, praise the Lord. If they reject it, if they point at you and say, if you loved me, you would affirm what I'm doing. You wouldn't reject what I'm doing. If they reject you and push you away, well then, you continue to pray for them. But perhaps you've lost your ability to tell them. And so, if you really love someone, and Paul loved the Corinthian church, you would correct them in their error. It doesn't mean that you become someone who's hypercritical, that you point out every little tiny error to someone. Why don't you just look at the big errors? <laughs> if there's a big blaring error, I mean, come on, we all fail every single day. You could be hypercritical about anybody. I could pick any, any single one of you 
Uh, I could get access to your secret emails. I could, not that I would do that. Um, I would, I could spy on you in, in your home. I could talk to everybody who knows you, dig up all the dirt that I possibly could. And man, we could have a heyday with all the mistakes that you've made. Or you could do the same with me if you really wanted to. If you really wanted to come after me, you could discredit me, you could defame me, you could uh, pull up all sorts of dirt. We all have that. That's why when I look across the world and I see people highlight a certain person, whether it be a football coach or a politician, and they, they pretty much dig up every piece of dirt they possibly can from 10, 20 years ago, and then they just try and trash on them. I mean, that's a fact. You, you can find dirt on anybody. But when we're correcting and rebuking people, we do it according to the Lord. And we do it when we see a major problem that's keeping them from following the Lord as they should. And in those instances, especially if their sin is unrepentant, then yes, we have an obligation as fellow believers to call each other out, come to each other privately, tell tell each other our concerns, share with each other the scripture that addresses the problem, pray with them, do it graciously. And so this is all out of love. This is all out of the desire for unity from Paul. Let's continue in verse 10. Paul continues, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So notice here he goes from thanksgiving, assuring them of his love for them and God's love for them and their brotherhood in the faith to then making an appeal. And this appeal will be a bridge into all the other stuff he's going to get into. So his appeal here is based off of this urgent matter that was brought to his attention by Chloe's people. And I can only imagine Chloe's people or Chloe herself Uh, was a member of the Corinthian church who was probably one who was close to Paul or she really looked to Paul as as her primary mentor in the faith. And so she reported to Paul these problems that she was seeing, primarily the division. And so Paul, when he makes this appeal, he shows us the seriousness of the appeal. And you can know it's serious when he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's like putting a stamp on it. That's saying, I really mean it. This is really, really serious. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm making this appeal. And if you read through Paul's letters, there's certain occasions where he says, not the Lord, but I say this. Like he's given his his personal mentoring in that situation, his wisdom, uh, practical wisdom in that situation. But when he says, the Lord says this, like he he is probably speaking dictated word directly from God. Here's what God has spoken to me and what I'm going to speak to you directly exactly. And so what he is about to appeal to the church is according to the exact character of Christ himself. And his appeal is an appeal to unity. Jesus said in Matthew 12:25, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. So in Jesus' prayer for his disciples, uh, he prayed 
for this unity because he recognized the fact that if congregations are so deeply divided, there's no way they can survive. And this is true. A lot of people like to use this of nations as well. And, and yeah, relatively that's true as well. If we can't get along, if we're so polarized from each other that we can't even agree on, on common facts and truths, if we can't even do that, our, our hope of success of staying united as a, as a country, there's no, there's no chance. Our enemies will come in and wipe us out easy if we're not united in some way. And the same is true as Christ spoke to the church here, that if we are not united in at least the most major ways, in the, on the most major items, then there's no way we can survive as a church. And if any enemy were to rise up against our congregation, try to shut us down, then they would be easily successful. We would be scattered, we would be divided, we'd be uh, torn apart easily. So this is why Jesus, he prays for the unity of the church. And we find this in John chapter 17, verses 19 through 23. Jesus prays, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the word may believe, the world may believe, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. So our unity really is our best example or our best testimony to the world of our faith. And so a church that is disorganized and, and disjointed and, and divided is a bad testimony to the world. And that church probably should be dissolved. You know, I think of Mars Hill, as I was explaining at the beginning, there were some deep, deep divisions there by the time 2014 came along. And um, they had to dissolve. And it was probably a good thing that they did. It doesn't mean we can't be thankful for the work that they've done, but also their division became a bad testimony to the world. Because Mark Driscoll, he became one of those celebrity pastors who uh, was even on the national stage on, on Dateline debate nights. I don't know if you remember those. Uh, one time he was debating Deepak Chopra, who's like one of these uh, Hindu life coaches. And I remember Mark Driscoll took him to task. I mean... In terms of a debate, Mark Driscoll destroyed him. And even this man who walked up to the front, this elderly gentleman walked up to the front, and uh, he, he really caught Deepak Chopra in this, in this um, uh, fallacy. And it was a beautiful thing to behold. And you know, the, I think the church was rejoicing that the truth of God was represented so well on the world stage. But he became such a celebrity pastor, and the world came to know him, that the fall, when the fall happened and the church was divided, the world and the people who hated him and hated Christ and hated the church mocked and laughed and said, see, see, whatever they're peddling doesn't work. They can't even stay together. And it creates a, a abusive and angry pastors, people who overwork their, their servants and their, their, uh, their ministers. 
But Christ is calling and praying for us to be united. And Paul received this report of division, and that division had gotten so bad that he heard of it. And what he heard is that they were quarreling. And the Greek word there is eris. There was some quarreling among them. Now, throughout the Bible, whenever you see uh, uh, instruction on quarreling, usually it's in the negative. And that's because quarreling is not just some light disagreement. Quarreling is not just uh, theology debated amongst the church. But quarreling is a deep-rooted, dissenting discord that is normally caused by competing ideologies. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 3 of the first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul writes, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So they were jealous of each other. There was strife. There was constant quarreling. There was deep-rooted ideologies that were conflicting and butting heads against each other. They could not get along. Some people would sit on this side of the congregation in their little faction, in their little group. Others would sit over here. And, and probably they were, they were talking trash about the other groups back and forth. Uh, I can't believe they believe that. Can you believe? Yeah, I can't believe that either. Well, I'll show them this Sunday. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to make them look so foolish. I mean, that was probably going on in that church. Paul even writes to uh, his disciple Titus in Titus 3, 9 through 11. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels, there's that word again, about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So what we discover as Paul continues his letter here is that their quarreling and division had reached a point where he needed to step in and address them formally with a letter. You know, if you've been in church for any period of time, if you've come to any Bible study or any kind of a a koinonia group or something like that, you know that we're going to have some disagreements. We're going to wrestle through some things together. We're going to have misunderstandings that, that we all have to work through together sometimes those can get rather elevated i've I've been in you know from bible college through church through all that i've been in some uh kind of really heated bible studies where we're we're really going after the stuff and and you have one person taking a certain view another person taking another view but then by the end the temperatures come down And we're thankful for that experience because we've all come to a better knowledge. The two people who were debating and the people who were onlookers who were witnessing that happen. And then by the end, we find a common ground or a right understanding. And you know what I've found with Scripture? A lot of times, when there's dispute about a certain topic, um, when there's good, faithful believers who are taking different sides, usually what we find is that both of those things can be true at the same time. That, that it's not just one or the other, but it can be both and. You know, especially when we talk about things like free will versus predestination, people think it needs to be one or the other. 
But what we found over the centuries of debating this stuff, and even here today, is that really it is both and, that both are true at the same time. That there is free will, but God is predestining. And how that plays out practically, you know, nobody's really explained it perfectly. But both of those things, according to the scripture, are in fact happening. Yes, God is opening that door. He is intending for you to open that door. And yes, you are, by your free will, walking through that door. By your free will, you got up this morning and you decided to come to church. And by other people's free will, they did not. But yet, you're here for a reason. God has influenced your heart, made it possible for you to get here for a reason. And we believe that. We believe in the providence and the sovereignty of God. But we also believe in the free will and the responsibility of man. And so both things can be true at the same time. And I find with many of our debates and our arguments in the church, that's usually the case, is that we fail to recognize that both things can be true. Or we need to at least wrestle with how both things are true. So as we continue in this letter, we find that their quarreling and their divisiveness ultimately reached a point where they were starting to uh, drag the church leaders into the arguments. So let's go to the last section we're going to cover for today, verses 12 through 17. Paul continues, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. But is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so we're going to stop there for this week. And what I want to show you is that in our Christian life, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, we can all tend to gravitate towards certain Bible teachers and certain ministers and certain ministries and certain churches. That is absolutely normal. But in this case, it came to Paul's attention that the believers at Corinth, they were divided into factions based upon their apostolic preferences. So the Bible teachers that they clung to, they tend to divide into groups. And so one faction became Paul's faction. Well, we are followers of Paul. Now, Paul, as we talked about his life a little bit last week, as you know, Paul had evangelized and laid the groundwork for the church at Corinth and in much of the Greco-Roman world. He was called to be a preacher to the Gentiles. Paul was brave. He was zealous. He was a zealous preacher, and he had a, a Pharisee's education. So he was a Jew of Jews. He knew the uh, Talmud. He knew the Old Testament he knew all of the Old Testament scriptures perfectly, very well. Well-educated Pharisee. He also was a single man. He never married. And so he was very uh, bold. He was very zealous in his faith. And he uh, even asked in one of his letters, he said, you know, if, if it's possible, forsake marriage as I have. 
for the sake of the gospel. But then he also added the fact that because of the sinful world and because of all your passions and your lusts, I encourage every person to get married. But if you can be like me, then yeah. Because he was such a pioneer of evangelism. But yet it seems as though he was lacking eloquent speech, or at least he was not the most eloquent speaker of, of his time. And so you had the people who kind of gravitated towards his personality, towards, towards his preaching style, who decided that they were part of the Paul camp, that what Paul preached, they agreed with. And they would often quote from Paul. And they, they would often say, well, Paul says this in their argumentation. And then you find that there was also this Apollos faction. Uh, Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew who was a dynamic, well-read, and we know this because if he was from Alexandria, there was a grand library in Alexandria, not just of Hebrew texts, but of texts from all over the world. And so if he was in Alexandria, if he was a scholar, he would have been very well-read, even more well-read than the Apostle Paul. And we also see that he was a charismatic evangelist, trained by Priscilla and Aquila. And despite Paul's own admission of their partnership in ministry, which they were, actions grew within the church where people said, well, you're of Paul, but we're of Apollos. He is more of our flavor. We like the fact that he's more cosmopolitan, that he has more worldly knowledge. I mean, he can, he can quote the great philosophers. In his sermons, he, he quotes Plato and Aristotle. The Apostle Paul does not. And so, therefore, we think we get a, a greater, more richer uh, wealth of knowledge from Apollos. And so we follow Apollos. And so many believe that uh, Apollos was the one to follow. In fact, just for your own personal notes, uh, we are unsure entirely of who recorded the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Many scholars, and I would say I, I kind of lean this way as well, believe that Apollos is the author of the book of Hebrews. So he was influential. And then Paul addresses Kepha. There was a, a faction for the person called Kepha. Does anybody know who Kepha is? Who? Peter. So Kepha is the Aramaic translation of the Greek name Peter. So Paul here is referring to the apostle Peter. Yes, the same one who denied Jesus on the night he was betrayed. That apostle Peter but also the Apostle Peter, which Christ said, upon you I will build my church. You are the rock upon which I will build my church. And Peter's name, Kepha's name, means rock. And so the distinguishing feature of Kepha, or Peter, is that he was in the inner cabinet of, of Jesus' ministry. Um, Peter, along with James and John, they were in, in a tight group with Christ himself the tightest of the tight, when, when Jesus would take them up on the and show them his heavenly glory, Peter, John, and James were there. And so he would be teaching them, encouraging them. And Peter, unlike Apollos and Paul, walked with Christ through almost his entire ministry. 
And so many people like to be in the camp of, of Peter. Well, because Peter was there. He, he learned directly from Jesus over all those years. And Peter's characteristic, he was a, a passionate man. He was an emotional man. He spoke very boldly. Uh, he, had, he had great power. He was very instinctive, uh, very reactive as well. You know, so a lot of people who are attracted to kind of that, that emotional connection, you know, they related with Peter. And again, besides the fact that he walked with the Lord. And his ministry was also, he had a primary emphasis on the Jews. So where Paul, his emphasis was on the Gentiles, the Greeks. Um, Peter's emphasis was with the Jews. And so he also put great emphasis on preserving many of the Jewish customs. And so some of those like traditionalists who were like, yes, we need to keep all the feasts, the feasts of the unleavened bread, the feasts of the booths. We need to uh, exercise all of these traditions that, that Israel had exercised. We like Peter because he's a traditionalist. He holds on to the traditions. And so you can see that even in the first century of believers, that there was factions, there was divisions, they had their guy that they followed. And you know what? 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. We do the exact same thing. In our church shopping efforts, you know, aren't we kind of looking for those things that, that we connect with? You know, maybe some of the things that you were shopping for, uh, you, you found you connected with here. And maybe in, in our relationship, you found that, that my personality or my preaching type is one that you connect with. That you learn from, and which is why you're here, which is why you stay here. Not that that's uh, something that will happen for all time, because naturally we all gravitate, and we all we get to different places in our faith, and we, we start to look to other teachings. But we do the exact same thing. And sometimes we even develop actions that are deep-rooted, that are almost in opposition of each other. Oh, well, you know, I've uh, me and John talk a lot about Paul Washer. Paul Washer is somebody that, that they've really gravitated towards. Great Bible preacher, but if you know him, he doesn't mince his words. He speaks very directly. He gets to the point, and sometimes he's very intense with, with his preaching. That's not for everybody. I've heard some people who say, I can't listen to that. No, no, no. And then some people are like, yeah, man, he, he says it like it is. I know some of you are really attached to... Uh, uh, Bodhi Bauckham, as, as I am as well. We, we have all of our preachers and teachers, John MacArthur's. We, we have all these people that we gravitate towards and that we like to listen to and that we learn from. There's nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly normal and natural. In fact, we're supposed to be learning from people this way. There are even denominations today that are named after the, the groups that, or the factions that they were following. One off the top of our head is uh, the Lutherans. Lutherans are based off of the particular teachings of Martin Luther. Thankfully, they left out the anti-Semitism because Martin Luther was an anti-Semite, if you didn't know. But they followed his particular Reformed teachings. Calvinists based off of John Calvin. Many Calvinists exist today, though there's not many churches called the Church of Calvin, but there are many Calvinists within churches. 
And so we tend to gravitate towards the teachings or the particular emphasis that we agree with. And sometimes we even give it a name, like Lutheran or Calvinist. And so we all gravitate this way. And I think the problem comes, and the point that Paul is trying to make, is that when we start to boast about who we follow or who we listen to, or we almost become evangelists for that individual and their brand of teaching. Uh, We quote them often. We promote and share their material. And we even argue whose teacher is best. Well, my favorite teacher is better than your favorite teacher. And here we are children again. Well, my dad could beat up your dad. Well, my preacher could beat up your preacher. I think even Judy Madden one time jokingly on Facebook Uh, was referring to me, said that my preacher can beat up your preacher. And she did it jokingly, I know that. But there are some people who really have that kind of mindset. That's exactly right. When we're kids, we do that kind of thing. And when we're adult kids, we do the same thing. We start to pit our favorite things against one another. Some even elevate their pastor to the point where they're idolizing them where they might even put them on the same pedestal as Christ himself, where their entire faith hinges on a ministry or a minister. And as a pastor who's been in the field for many years now, I have seen people who have put their faith entirely on a church or a church leader. And when that church fails or is divided or splits, or that church minister slips up in sin, maybe disqualifies their ministry, then along with that goes their faith. And that's because they were putting their faith in the wrong thing. And Paul is addressing this point that these people, these Corinthians, were starting to put their faith in men instead of where it belonged, which is in Christ. But this only serves to create more factions and divisions. And this was one major problem that they had. We are all, we are above all called to be Christians. The early Christians were mocked and given the name Christian, follower of Christ. That was meant to be an insult. But for the early Christians, that was a badge of honor. Because if you were called a Christian, that meant that you passed the test of the world, that they are associating you with Christ. And so they received that name and we are still called Christians here today. That's because we are called to be followers of Christ. We are not called to be followers of Paul. We're not called to be followers of Apollos or Kepha or John MacArthur or John Piper or John Calvin or C.S. Lewis. They are all called to be followers of Christ, as we are called to be followers of Christ. Don't misunderstand. Paul, even in his letter, says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Any preacher worth his salt will take the heart and attitude of John the Baptist and say, I must decrease so that he must decrease. My primary function for you is to be a funnel, Christ, that through this teaching, that hopefully you are drawn closer to him. That you don't follow me, you don't go home and brag to your friends about me, 
but you go home and break to your friends about Christ. That ought to be our posture. Every single believer ought to be, have that posture. And it's not about us. It's not about the success of our ministry. It's not about the growth of our ministry, but it's about the growth of Christ in people's hearts. And so Paul alludes to this fact. He asks some rhetorical questions here. He points out the fact that Christ is not divided and neither should his church be. If we are one with Christ as he was praying, then we should be united in Christ. And if we're united in Christ, then we're successful in our ministry efforts. It starts with unity. If we're not united, we can't accomplish much of anything. Christ was crucified for our sins, not the Apostle Paul. Christ, he is the one who came, died on the cross as an atonement for the sins of the world so that all who believe in him, whether Jew or Gentile, all who look upon him will be healed from their terminal illness and their eventual death, which is sin, which is the second death. It was Christ alone, our cornerstone. We sing about that this morning. It is Christ we worship because it was Christ who was crucified. Also, we are not baptized into Paul. If, you have, if I have helped with the baptism, with your baptism, you were not baptized into Craig Phillips. You were not baptized into Clayton Community Church. You were baptized into Jesus Christ, the Lord and the Savior, who has washed you clean, who has made you new, who has given you a hope and a future, who has given you salvation. It is Christ you were baptized into. It's not a bad thing to be happy about the place you fellowship in. It's not a bad thing to encourage people to come and join us if you believe that we're in the truth, if you are, so to speak, proud of the place that you worship, if you are happy that we are teaching from the Bible, that we are doing the best that we can to live in in unity with one another. It's not a bad thing to encourage friends to come, but it is a bad thing when you start to idolize the place that you worship or the people who are teaching. Because ultimately, all, all worship, all praise, all glory, all honor, all favor goes to Christ. All of it. So my friends, to be a Christian means to be a follower of Christ. And Jesus needs to be our rallying cry here, now, and forevermore at this place. That no matter what background you have, no matter how new of a believer you are, maybe you, you've just believed for one month, or how long you've been a believer. Maybe you've been a believer as long as you can remember, 50 plus years. No matter what background you have, what trade you do, no matter what learning style you have or gifts God has given you, that no matter how different we might be on many different, in many different ways, that the rallying cry and the unity cry is around Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. And so we can unite around Christ no matter our differences. And so that's my encouragement for us here this week as we continue to go through uh, the first letter to the Corinthian church by Paul, is that we make that the main thing, is that no matter what we go through, 
no matter what we disagree on, at the end of the day, we come together around Christ, around the cross. We give him the praise that is due and the grace to one another that is necessary. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Corinthian church and their example. I thank you, God, that uh, even though they were fractured and broken in many ways and unhealthy in many ways, that, God, you did not abandon them. You did not um, get rid of them, but, God, you held on and you persisted. And through Paul, you patiently corrected and, and rebuked them and you helped them to see the error of their ways. And so I thank you for that, Lord, not only for their, their sake, but for ours here today, that we can read that letter of rebuke. We can be encouraged. We can be reminded that even though we're not perfect, even though we swarm with many faults, that God, if we preach your word purely, if your word is heard, if your grace is shown through the spiritual gifts that are given, and if we apply those gifts in the right way, that God, you will be gracious with us, you will be with us, you will never leave us or forsake us. But God, you are with us, and you will hang on to us. Help us to be a united church. Help us, Lord, to, to minister to this area successfully in our unity. And may the world look upon us and see a miracle, the fact that sinful people can come together and agree. Agree that you are the Lord, you have called us to do your work and called us to be gracious and patient with one another. And so God, as we leave here today, may we all be reminded of this throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to stay for soup and fellowship. Have a nice day, you're dismissed.